Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online, thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil, and find out. G'day again, everyone. I'm Aaron Noon, and welcome back to the V8 Sleuth podcast powered by Timken, a world leader in bearings and mechanical power transmission products and services. Now, as you might know, 2020 marks the 40th anniversary of Dick Johnson Racing, and we've spent over a year working on a limited edition book covering 40 years of cars produced by DJR, and these days, DJR Team Penske. You can pre-order it now at authenticcollectibles.com.au, and as we publish this podcast, it's about to go off to the printers. Now, the research for this book took us to DJR Team Penske HQ in the middle of 2019, where we caught up with Dick Johnson, and if you haven't heard that podcast yet, do yourself a favour and go through our back catalogue and have a listen. While we were there, though, we also got a chance to record the podcast you're about to hear. Ryan's story has played a key role in not just getting DJR Team Penske to where it is today, but ensuring its very survival. In the first part of our chat, Ryan takes you inside DJR's most tumultuous years, with a focus on the events leading up to the end of 2012. He reveals just how bad things were and the measures that allowed it to survive through the next couple of seasons. And he also opens up on his own life story, which is a remarkable tale in itself, one that he hasn't really told in many places at all. Once again, I've got to remind you, this podcast was recorded in July 2019. So that was before the team won the Bathurst 1000 and the Supercars Championship. And because it was such a spur-of-the-moment record, Unfortunately, we didn't get to put out the call for our National Motor Racing Museum Couch Racer questions or put Dr. Story through our traditional V8 Sleuth Top 10 shootout. But don't worry, they'll be back for our next sit-down chats in the episodes ahead. So, here we go. Buckle up, time to start. Part 1 of Ryan's story on the V8 Sleuth podcast, powered by Timken. We're sitting in the bowels of DJR Team Penske. I'm in Ryan Story's office. Ryan Story is sitting alongside from me. Welcome to the V8 Sleuth Podcast. It is an absolute pleasure to be here. I just wish my office was in a better state uh, of uh, preparedness. You've got a bit of stuff here, but there's a lot of cool stuff here that sort of tells your time of your time in the sport. DJR, DJR Team Penske, and it's hard to know where to start with you, but we want to know the Ryan Story story. So we know you in the pit lane. We know you from your role here at the, the race team. But where did this all start that a kid from South Australia has gone a very different pathway to end up working for the one of the top race teams in Australia? How did you end up here? Where did it all start? Well, I think you could say it was a series of bad choices. <laughs> no, no, no. Absolutely not. Um, when I was a young kid growing up in a regional area, it's basically... And this is outside Adelaide. Yes, this is about 300 k's from Adelaide. I grew up on a farm and the only sport was Aussie rules and racing was different. And there weren't many of my peers or classmates or friends who were into racing at all. But where it all started for me is that uh, my maternal auntie has worked for over 40 years for a Ford dealership. And that Ford, that Ford dealership is, uh, is uh, 90 years young, I believe, next year. MJ Murdoch Motors in Yorktown. And from the age of about five, she would bring home all of the Ford Motorsport paraphernalia and who would be featured 
front and centre in all of that, none other than Richard Francis Johnson, and of course John Bow at the time. So it was originally in the early days some Sierra stuff, but uh, as soon as the V8 to Group A category came back to the fore, there was a lot of yellow shell cars. And that's really what started the passion for me, was getting access to all of these really cool posters and books and the Ford paraphernalia as it was at the time. And then going through the TV guide, finding out when it was on at TV, usually late at night, setting the VCR up to record. I lived the same life. And, uh, and, and just taking it from there. I mean, I've, I've still got a lot of those videos. I'm, I'm, I'm a, a nerd and a hoarder, much like your good self. So, Gee, uh, thanks. <laughs> no, look, it's a term of endearment. Um, but, uh, but I've still got a lot of all that stuff. It, but uh, some of those posters back in those early days were really, really cool. And, and that's also what's been great going through some of Dick's archives over the years. He's kept posters from all of those years. So I can actually date the years I went to Malala and the posters that I got from Malala back in 1994 and 1993 and all of this sort of thing. And there's copies, there's pristine condition copies down in the vaults here at uh, 10 Emery Street, which is pretty cool. How do you end up going from being a race fan kid to being the MD of DJR Tim Penske, the reigning champions of, of supercars? You've... You led an amazing life as as a young guy, and for those who know you from motor racing, won't know of what you've done and where you've been with involvement in politics and all sorts of things in business. I mean, you're young, you're younger than me. Uh, that makes me feel slightly old. But how do we package up what Ryan's story's done and where you've been to, I, to fill the gap from the school kid that was a Dick Johnson racing fan to now sitting here? In, a, in an office at the, the team workshop. It's, it's funny when you're in a packed pat, pit, pit paddock and you can overhear people say, oh, that's, that's right story there. That's right. And, and uh, I've occasionally heard, not sure whether he's an old young man or a young old man, <laughs> which always makes me laugh. I quite like that. But uh, I, started, uh, I started my own business when I was still in primary school selling computers. Hang on. So you're what, eight, nine, ten? Uh, probably 11. Yeah, 10, 11. When most 10 or 11-year-olds are worried about what's for lunch and when they can go play outside, you are running a business with computers. Yeah. so I was, Out of hours from school. Yes. And and selling computers to school teachers and all sorts of things. So I think by the you time- You made money out of your own teachers. Yes, yes. Brilliant. I think by the time I went to high school, I'd already sold over 100. And this the, the, the Yorktown community has a population so of you, about 700 people, I was so say, it's pretty you, small. So you, were you wholesaling these or building them, or what were you doing? It was a mixture of both. Um, I had uh, wholesale connections through Adelaide, and, and my parents my parents were farmers, and my, my father in particular is quite entrepreneurial. And for a while, he owned um, the York Peninsula Passenger Service, which meant that I got free freight from Adelaide every day <laughs> on the York Peninsula Passenger Service. And uh, that that was that that was fantastic. I, I just had an FOC label on on the coach freight, and the computers would come late at night, and I'd either meet the meet the bus, I'd, I'd make mum or dad drive me in to meet the bus, or have the bus come out to the farm with the with these computers, and I'd I'd unload them, and then the next day I'd check them, or sometimes I'd stay up late and check them, and then because I couldn't drive, of course, I'd have to make the customers come to me to collect them, and they'd pick me up, and then I'd go out to their farms or to their houses and set them all up, and that business still exists. Uh, in, in under a different guise today, um, it's based out of Canberra and has about twenty staff. So that blows my mind to think that there that is a very small percentage of kids in Australia ever who would be doing something like that. And it's interesting you say about your, your dad and the entrepreneurial mentality. So clearly that passed on 
in, into you. But, oh, but what, sure. And this was all self-generated. You, you thought yes. that, well, I like this stuff, I'm into this stuff, I'm going to do this stuff. Well, I was into computers pretty early on from, from a young age and that was not I'm, – I'm very fortunate. I had parents who would do anything for me, myself and my brother and my sister. And made a huge amount of sacrifices for me. And being growing up in a regional area, oftentimes when you're doing public speaking competitions and debating competitions, and I played lawn bowls as a kid, so I was doing the only sport I played in primary school and high school at a state, at a, up to a state level and state championships and things was lawn bowls. So they'd drive me to Adelaide, you know, for all sorts of different reasons, and would. Sacri- effectively sacrifice a day's work to do that, and the answer was never no. No, so. Uh, um, tremendously grateful for that and uh, certainly no part of my upbringing that I would change but I, I was very fortunate in that sense and you know I also had an after-school job packing shelves at uh, at a supermarket and packing bags at the supermarket the supermarket in Yorktown and uh, that was a real a real experience for me as well and it was just a great great community and a, a great way to uh, grow up. Did that make you different from the other kids? Were you, were you deemed a different sort of a kid because you're doing something that really no other kid was doing, and kids can be really nasty. Yeah, yeah. Oh, look, I think you only need to look at me to probably come to the assumption that I was bullied at some point in my life. But uh, I think that I think you need. I think every kid needs a bit of that. You need. You need. You need to get tough. You need to. You need. You need someone else to call you something. Something different to uh, develop the calluses that uh, get you through life. And and I went through that. And and uh, and yeah, it was. It, it was a it was a good childhood, but I, I spent far more time with people older than me than people my own age. I, I mean, for, for, I started started playing lawn bowls at the age of eleven, and every Saturday would we would drive to towns all over the York Peninsula in South Australia to play lawn bowls. And I was never particularly good at it, but I loved it. I was the youngest um, youngest. I think I was equal youngest Australian certified bowls umpire through Bowls Australia. And I got that when I was twelve or thirteen or something like that. I was very young when I got when I got that. And the plan at the time was to hopefully be an umpire at the Commonwealth Games in Melbourne in two thousand six, but it wasn't meant to be. I was under eighteen when you had to submit your application, so it wasn't accepted. But I was an umpire for many years, and and if you play lawn bowls. Uh, uh, and go to a lawn bowls match and uh, they can't determine which ball's closer to the kitty, someone will yell out umpire and usually an umpire will run out with all of the equipment. Appears <laughs> from nowhere with their tape measure. Yeah, and, and you would have the average age of, a, of, a, of, of, of the players on the green back in, in my playing days would probably be 70, 70 to 75 <laughs> and all of a sudden this, this 11, 12-year-old kid starts running out with the calipers and the, all the measuring equipment and oftentimes, particularly when it was at other clubs, uh, some of the players thought it was a, someone was taking the mickey and <laughs> taking the piss, but uh, it was it was legitimate. So yeah, it was it was different, and uh, I learned a huge amount through that. I mean, the the great thing about uh, about uh, playing bowls for all those years is that I got to spend a lot of time with a number of Second World War vets and and people who had been successful in business and in life, and. I just uh, I lived by the old ratio that I don't necessarily live by now, which is you've got two ears, uh, two ears and uh, one mouth, and you need to respect the ratio. So I used to just sit and listen and absorb all the stories, and I learned an awful lot through through those years. Secondary school is the period where most kids get asked, "What do you want to be? What do you want to do?" What was Ryan's story when he's fourteen, fifteen, starting to 
step into the next phase of schooling? Are we, have we taken over the world yet? Are we running more businesses? <laughs> are we selling more computers? What's, well, I, what's next of, uh, in the evolution? I started to get involved in politics, which, well, for better or worse, and had, uh, and had those interests and, uh, and got involved in that very early as well and started out. So you're, are you an inquisitive mind or are you a... Uh, where, where does that come from? That that's not every kid who is wired like that. With with all due respect, I'm not trying to put you yeah. on the bus, here, but <laughs> but but it's not the sort of thing that we would normally expect a 14, 15 year old to become very active. Well, or, I was even younger than that at the at the time. I think I became a, a member of the party in and, and which party? For those who don't know, it starts with an L. Um, does it end with an L or an L? Uh, it, it, it doesn't matter. But okay. I think anyone who spends more than five minutes with it'll be pretty easy to figure it's out. Pretty easy. To okay. figure. I, I don't shy away from my politics, um, but uh, but it's but it's in in the role that I have with the team. It's an, obviously it's an apolitical role, but uh, it's, it's just one of those things where I, I, I don't get into it in in mm. great depth. But I'm I'm proud of the time that I served. Uh, Served, served various roles uh, within within the organisation itself. But uh, it was interesting as a kid going to those meetings and handing out how to vote cards at elections. So you were one of those little kids on election days handing that yeah, out? Yeah, I was too young to vote, but I was handing out how to vote cards. And I was a campaign manager before I was old enough to vote. Um, and that's, uh, that's an interesting, <laughs> interesting uh, way of growing up, I suppose. Business-wise, what are we doing when we're going through school? Where are you aiming? What are you trying to be? So the business side of things continued to grow through high school, and it got a little bit out of out of hand because it was getting quite it was getting quite big. It was selling yeah, well over a hundred computers a year, and managing that, particularly when it came to year eleven and year twelve, became a massive distraction to my studies. And uh, but I'm sure your your cash income is much better than the average <laughs> well, year eleven student. <laughs> I I did okay, but uh, it it basically meant that I I shifted focus from from the academic to business and, and other opportunities, and then uh, obviously went through university. Um, and what did you study? Where did you go? So initially to Adelaide and studied a studied economics economics and arts. Um, very very simple. Simple, straightforward stuff. That, that was what was expected. That was what you're expected to do. Uh, but then I had some health challenges around that same time, and that meant that I intensified my studying, and uh, I've ended up uh, still maintained my business interests, and uh, and that that grew at the same time. But through some health challenges, uh, meant that I distanced myself from my social network, so to speak, which I think a lot of people do when they when they get sick and aren't quite sure how to handle it and what to do. And uh, and to make up for that time, I studied like a crazy person and was heavily involved in politics during the day. And, and uh, a lot of people were very good to me throughout, uh, throughout those years. So all this time of business and politics, motor racing hasn't popped up in here yet? Well, I would attend... The Malala Touring Car Championship race every year, and of course the Adelaide 500, and then the Clipsal 500 every year with my father, and that was that was my only real, real physical. That was your uh, fix outlet every year. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was attending every year, and and uh, 
I never forget the first time I met uh, DJ at Malala in 1997. I came back. I was in primary school at the time. And I came back and I had this signed poster. I didn't take the poster to the school, but no one believed me that I'd met this guy. So I'd, I, I'd put this bloke on such a pedestal. I'd talk about him all the time, I'd talk about the race team and the cars all the time. All the other kids and the teachers thought I was crazy. And, of course, they were right. <laughs> but then when I said, I've just been to Malala and I've met Dick Johnson and I got a photo with him and... And, and all this, and this is back in the days where twenty-four hour photos—you don't quite get those in Yorktown in South Australia at that point in time. We did later, fortunately, but it took a week before the film was developed. <laughs> and of course, you sort of got to—you got to get to twenty-four shots before the roles ready to get sent in anyway. So uh, it took—it took seven days, and then I took the photo into into school, and I remember taking the poster into school, and the most. Dubious about the whole thing was my teacher. She was like, "You didn't meet Dick Johnson." I said, "Yes, I did. Yes, I did." So I got to take the photo in and the poster, and that was pretty cool. Cop that exactly, <laughs> exactly. Every lap in under a minute, every move made to matter, every decision impacting the outcome of the race. Supercars in Perth. Every second matters. Bosch Power Tools Perth Super Sprint, May 17 to 19. Book now at Ticket Tech. Supercars. Unforgettable. Now, you talked about business and what, what, what businesses are you in? Are you in IT? Are you, what's, uh, well, what, it, what it's interesting. Business? So it, start, it, it initially started out as IT and that IT business still exists, service with managed service prov- providers and um, basic, basic sales and service and that sort of thing. Still have a number of clients of, across the country. Um, but where it really ramped up for me was post-uni and in the world what we what you would describe today as big data, um, big data analysis, um, and knowing how to take uh, data that businesses in particular had, look for trends, look for new revenue opportunities, look for new customer opportunities, look for look for trends and patterns with their existing existing customer base, and then search out opportunities based upon those people and uh, the profiles of those people that they had on board. So that was before that big data term was a term. It was pre-big data, but it was big data. And it used technology that I developed myself, which was subsequently licensed by a number of uh, technology companies uh, and uh, and other organisations around the world. Uh, and that uh, that was quite, quite a successful time. It took me to America a number of times. It got me involved in politics in the United States as well firstly with a gubernatorial election in 2006 um yeah but i had, had some great great opportunities as a consequence of that and we live in a world that data is king you hear that quite often these days uh, whether it's um businesses who are looking to market to people they're trying to find you know social media has become such a, a place for that so you were kind of a little bit before your time in a way of before it was in focus that data was king in that contacting people, um, finding trends, what do they buy, how do they buy it. The application, I guess, for you in a business like that would go across literally just about any form of business, government out there. Yeah, so it, it started off with a political application and then I developed it. And to how does have it get a, applied politically? What sort of things are we talking here well, that, that does? In, in the United States, voting is voluntary. So the first thing you need to do is convince someone or, com- or effectively compel them, give them a compelling story to vote. And then, of course, you've got to get them to vote for you. So mm. they call it 
GOTV, get out the vote. Uh, and that was a huge focus of uh, of what some of the some of the data targeting was all about was getting people to attend uh, the ballot box on election day and and in uh, hopefully vote for the right uh, right candidate. We'll get back to the podcast in just a moment, but I wanted to tell you about our good friends at Timken, a world leader in bearings and mechanical power transmission products and services. Now, you might know their name and recognise their logo, but did you know that Timken products have been to the surface of Mars? It's true. Timken partnered with NASA to design and develop bearings for its Mars rover missions, Spirit, Opportunity and Curiosity, as well as for NASA's next scheduled mission to the red planet that's set to blast off in July 2020. The Curiosity rover used Timken bearings in its descent to the planet, as well as in the carousel system that positions the rover's sample cups for gathering and analysing rock, soil and atmosphere, plus two bearings that run the vacuum pump that supports the rover's analytical equipment. Those bearings are just 6.35 millimetres, yes, millimetres in size, and they rotate at 100,000 RPM. It's amazing. We'll bring you some more cool facts about Timken in each episode of the V8 Sleuth podcast this year, but now it's back to the podcast. So in this whole period, are we keeping an eye on the racing? Are we keeping an eye on what's going on with Dick Johnson Racing? There's been a... Um, from being the little kid at Malalar in the early days of the Adelaide 500, the team uh, rides waves up and down, more down than yeah, up. Yeah, yeah. There's a West Point drama. Uh, there's a case where Dick has to sell all the cars in terms of his private collection of cars. It builds back up the Jim Beam era, the championship win with James Courtney, some wins for Will Davison. And then when do you appear in the Dick Johnson racing scheme going from being a little kid that gets the signature in the photo at Malalar to now adult, young adult Ryan meeting Dick again down the track? How, does this, how do you get introduced into this next era of your racing life? It's interesting that the day that it occurred was a an important day for me and for a number of different reasons. So it was the day of the uh, New South Wales state election in 2011. And I'd been based in Sydney for, it was well over six months, living in a hotel, working at uh, campaign headquarters and doing data projects and some IT stuff as well and and, and really embedded, deeply embedded in, in that campaign. And it was the first time that I'd been in that situation where I'd been a deep embed, where I'd spent a significant portion of the year uh, in one space for a campaign. Um, My American experiences prior to that saw me fly in, fly out, and then using the best of breed technology at the time to stay connected to to, uh, the campaigns as they were. And the biggest thing with the data strategies and and the data aspect of my business was uh, the work that I did that was quite novel at the time in storing it and algorith- algorithmically categor- categorizing it and uh, having it all as automated as possible, which I could do effectively remotely. But it was a new way of, of, of managing big sets of data. So the New South Wales election was successful, which will immediately tell you what side of politics <laughs> that I'm on. And that I wasn't there on that. So the, the Saturday was the election day. I wasn't there because it coincided with the Australian Grand Prix. And I'd been invited to have a meeting in the F1 paddock and went to the Grand Prix. And 
on the Saturday, I wandered down from, I was in the paddock club as well, I went down from the paddock club to the supercars paddock and ran into Dick Johnson. And you're there for a meeting in F1 world or V8 world or? I was there for a meeting. Um, That's not an answer, Ryan. I, I know, and it's 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 okay, but it's not to do with DJR though. Nothing to do yeah, with DJR. I mean. Nothing to do with supercars. Um, it was to do with my data business. So I was was there for a meeting, and it it was. I ran into DJ, and this is 2011, after the James Courtney Championship win. This is a guy who should have been on top of the world, and he looked like shit. Now, I didn't know about his prostate cancer stuff that had all occurred the prior year. I, I, I wasn't aware of the full story, but to be perfectly honest with you, around that time, it's not that I'd switched off supercars, but I wasn't... You had plenty going on. I had a lot going yeah. on. And, I mean, Bathurst Bathurst was obviously the, the, the exception must to see, the rule. Must as it is, as it is, it is for, every year. As it is for everyone, for everyone whether, whether a casual uh, race fan or otherwise. But uh, but I wasn't as involved or as active with it as what I'd been. And the team to this day has its teammates fan club. I I was a foundation member of that in 2007. I'd maintained my membership throughout. But basically, I ran are you, into. Are you, are you still a member? I am. Yes, I am still a member. <laughs> um, member number one two one. There you go. Um, so I, I ran into DJ at uh, at the Grand Prix, and I just said to him, "I don't understand." How you and you just bailed, bailed up to him, just introduced yep. yourself and said hello and well, away you go. I had more front than Meyer in those days, and I was a pretty arrogant son of a bitch. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I think I'm, I think I've changed a lot as a person. And people who know me back then and uh, knew me back then and knew me in childhood will acknowledge that I'm a different person today than what I am now. And I think the race team is a huge part of that, and managing people within the race team is a huge part of that because when you're involved with people in politics and I had my own businesses, I had other people running staff for me within my own businesses, I was never hands on. And I have a fairly I had a fairly caustic and abrasive personality. I was very arrogant. I thought I had the answer to all the world's questions. Looking back at that I can just see that I was just an arrogant arrogant dickhead. Um and like I said, when I got when I got crook um, through uni, I pushed all of my close friends and even my family away from me for a what, significant what portion. What sort of stuff are we talking here? We obviously want to delve too deeply. Well, it was, what it sort was, of stuff are we talking it's, about? It's something that I continue to manage to this day. Yeah, it's not yeah. it's not something that, uh, that that causes me too many too many problems now, fortunately. But uh, I just bailed him. I just bailed the great man up. You know, five-time touring car champion, three-time <laughs> Bathurst winner. Just, I just, just basically shirt fronted the bloke, and just said, you know, how the hell did you let this happen? Like, what, what are you doing? Like, how, how, how does this happen? How do you go from hero to zero overnight? How this is happening again? Like, this is, this is just, this is just ridiculous. I said, there's so many ways that you could, you can give yourself a secure level of, uh, of, of income with small to medium businesses like mine who have no avenues or opportunity of of supporting the sport that they love um, or certainly don't have the investment levels to put stickers on cars but but want to be involved and surely there's got to be a capacity to do that look look I can, I can write something up just maybe even maybe something you could consider or think about and Dick Johnson being Dick Johnson shook my hand 
was very nice, very nice and polite to me, told me to email him if I had any thoughts along those lines. So I went away and wrote, wrote up this business plan that targeted small to medium business that would put together a quantum of, say, one to one and a half million dollars a year that would underwrite some of the existing sponsorship within the team, wouldn't necessarily mean more stickers on cars, but would create effectively a business network. And it just, it made sense to me, because um, I thought, here I am running a business, I've got employees, I've got all of these other things. Um, I love motorsport, I'd, I'd love love to find a way to get involved, I don't necessarily have three million dollars that I can put in year in, year out to get a big sticker on the side of both of the cars. But uh, but I'd love to be involved somehow. So that uh, turned into being, I think it was named DJR Business Connect, and it never really got off the ground for a whole bunch of reasons. But uh, my company signed up for it. I put a bit of money into the team in 2011, and the plan was for my company's logo to be on James Moffat's car at Bathurst. In 2011. 2011. And it comes Bathurst, and the logo's not on the car. I thought, you've got to be shitting me. I've paid to have my logo on the car. How can they not? How can they? How can they stuff that up? Then at the next event, they had the logo on the car, but they'd changed my logo. They changed the font in my logo. Ooh, went, upsetting. And coming from a world of politics where you where you're dealing with direct mail and flyers and things, I was very much. I was a stickler for, and I still am to this day, the font's got to be right, the kerning's got to be right, the spacing's got to be right. You know full hand, you've seen me in action with some of the projects we've worked I, I, on. I think the term is, you're a details man. Yes. So, I was but that's really, not a bad thing. If you're going to well, do something, do it properly. It's not, but it's a great way to piss people off. Anyway, I was, I was really, I was just, I was just gutted that, uh, that I'd gone to this level of trouble and... It was just almost just flippantly brushed aside. They put the, they they didn't put the logo on the car at the biggest you know the the great race. They didn't uh, they didn't even get the logo right when they put it on the car. Jeez, no wonder they're in the shit. <laughs> they treat if they treat a piss ant sponsor like me like this, how the hell are they treating the rest of them? And then come closer to year's end, there was the announcement that for twenty twelve it was going to be a four car team and. And I was at the stage where I was getting burnt out of politics. It was I was I was I'd been doing it since I was a very very young man, and I was I was ready for a new challenge. In 2012, though, you were hardly an old man. In fact, in 2019, you were hardly an old man. <laughs> so, come the beginning of 2012, um, I'd been talking about data, and there was talk about me potentially being a data engineer on one of the cars and helping out with that sort of thing. So I went and did some work with Motec and got to learn I2 and have a better understanding of the cars and turned up at the test day at Sandown, I believe. I remember meeting Mark Fenning for the first time there um, and was just wandering around, had an intention of attending all the races and assisting with the engineering in particular in any way I could. And, actually, and, this, and this is your contribution. This is not – you're not a paid – employee the company or anything you're no. just a, in in essence an enthusiast who's looking for a new challenge yeah yeah with with an engineering degree um so i was offering to do all these other different things and i had some thoughts particularly where it, when it came to simulation and how you could uh, how you could you know r- race cars the laws of physics are the laws of physics so i thought there has to be a way to in- incorporate some sort of 
simulation work for setup, evolution, and uh, and progression over the course of a race weekend. So I started working on that as a side project, and never really got off the ground because the, the the longer I spent being with the staff at the team and seeing the way management were running the team and the dynamic within the team, I couldn't help but be engrossed in it. It was like a bloody soap opera. Here was a race team that should never have expanded to four cars. It didn't have enough, it didn't have enough of a budget to run two cars properly, properly yet alone four. And it had all of these people, some of the smartest people I've ever met are in motor racing. That was the biggest wake-up call to me when I first got started with the team properly in 2012. It was just the intelligence, aptitude and capability of so many of the people within the organisation. But it was... You often joke in politics that uh, if something goes wrong for a minister, you say they've been poorly served and badly advised. Well, that's sort of how I felt about (laughs) Dick Johnson at that particular point in time. And when you go back through his story, and he certainly said it many times, he's got himself down the rabbit hole because he's naturally a very trusting person. And he's trusted the wrong people along, along the way. And I was no different. He put an enormous amount of trust in me. And he and you just were a guy who had lobbed at the Grand Prix yeah. and came up to him and said, so what are you doing? My, I thought the only way I could ever mitigate that, the only way I could ever, I suppose, attest or prove my bona fides, so to speak, was to be completely honest with him about everything. The good bits, the bad bits, never sugarcoat anything. And to be honest, at the time, I was really good at not sugarcoating things. <laughs> um, a spade was never a spade. It was always, it, there was always an adjective um, preceding it. So as 2012 progressed, obviously it was a terrible year for the team. Things were falling apart. Um, there was all sorts of talk of potential partners and all of this. And, and obviously they never sort of came to fruition and it got to the Gold Coast event at the end of 2012. I'd been travelling to all the events. I'd been based out of Melbourne. I'd relocated to to the Gold Coast. I was living in a hotel here at the Gold Coast. I lived in a hotel here on the Gold Coast for maybe nine months before I decided I'm actually living here now. <laughs> which was which I, I actually I lost a couple of, a couple of house plants through that uh, through that <laughs> commuting period <laughs> in leaving Melbourne. I was often away a lot longer than was anticipated, and still was running business in Melbourne. Had clients in Melbourne, and Adelaide, Sydney, trying to run all that, do all that. So I started delegating and offloading some of my other tasks and responsibilities, and stepping back from some of the political responsibilities as well to be more involved in the race team. And but then come twenty, uh, come the, uh, the Gold Coast race, I effectively handed the person who was running the team my hard card, my 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 ticket, my credential, and just said, I can't, I can't be a party of this anymore. I can't watch. It's like watching a train wreck. It just, um, and he and I had pers- had a personality clash anyway. He saw me as a threat, which was completely, uh, completely the wrong way to take my contribution as it was then. And at that point in time, I just put, I started putting money into the team as well, significant amounts of money into the team as well. So as, as a sponsor, as an investor, as a part, is that no? Comes I was, in I was, was paying for things. Um, I was, pa- I was, yeah, some sponsorship, but I was paying for things for the team. And and by now, you and Dick are quite close friends. Yeah, You're spending. Yeah. I was you know, quite time. quite close with with the Johnson family. Um, I wasn't quite close with Steve Brayback at that point in time, but uh, I became quite close with him come 2013. 
But I just went from a period from um, the Gold Coast race at the end of 2012 through to the end of 2012 of being out of the team, having communication with a lot of the staff, having developed friendships with a lot of the staff and obviously a, a great friendship with the Johnson family and uh, and understanding what was going on and getting bits and pieces. And it's a bit like trying to put together a puzzle when you've got uh, – pieces from from three different puzzle sets but uh, <laughs> but yours was from the box in the middle type thing so i was piecing a lot of different things together and some of the things i, we, I was hearing weren't quite credible um, which was part of the reason why i stepped back in the first place and i was hopeful i was hopeful that it was all going to turn out the way that everyone was saying that it would and that there was going to be these new partners and it was going to be a successful two-car operation and they were heading in the right direction i was happy to sort of step back from it but there came a point at the end of 2011 where I just thought there's a fraction too much fiction here. This is not. This is actually not playing out the way that anyone's saying it's going to play out. And there are a lot of people who are going to get burned. And that was when I started talking to Dick, Dick a bit more openly about what I thought of the situation. And that led to talks in early 2013. And should we paint a little bit of the picture here of... 12 in terms of and i'm happy to add the editorial to it but four cars were run out of the workshop but you had a mixture of scenarios of sponsorships dean fiore was running his wreck from out of here under the jim beam banner um there was a one of the existing wrecks that had been the teams that had been as part of the disintegration between dick and charlie schwerkel that was charlie's yes. that was being leased back here paul morris had a wreck running here out of a car and stephen johnson was obviously driving the 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 team's number 17 car so there's a, all sorts of pieces of puzzle yeah so in, going in, on to make up that matrix in the lead up to the end of 2012 the plan was there would be it would be a two-car team with a single sponsor across both cars Stephen johnson driving car 17 in the djr wreck and then the paul morris wreck driven by steve owen i'm not sure what the number was going to be at the it time it had been 49 previously so i assume, so, I assume yeah. it would have remained 49 so that was that was what was spoken about that was what all of the proposals were, were put about and i think I think the people running the team at the time had all the will in the world for it to be successful, but they were trying to solve problems that they didn't have the capacity to solve and had basically... I don't want to be overly disparaging because I can see how you can fall for the hunt, for that bear trap of thinking that everything's going to be okay and that all of these other all these other things are all going to come together and it will work out and she'll believing be right on the night she'll be yeah, right she'll, she'll be, be right, right on the night and it will all work out and I'm, and that's that's probably that's probably the, the the politest way of expressing where things were at the time and we're we talking there's just not enough money here to do the things that we're talking about doing so. Come the beginning of 2013, I went to Dick and Jill's house with Stevie J as well. And I'd had many conversations before then. And with what I'd seen, I'd seen aspects of the books. I knew that there were only two sponsorship agreements signed for that year and they were minor sponsors. And some of them were carryover agreements. I knew we were in a lot of trouble and I basically called this meeting. I just said, look, Dick, from everything I've seen, there's no getting out of it this time. It's time to shut the place down. And you told him to shut it? Yeah. I said, you need to change the locks on the gate. You need to do it within the next few days. And this is the very end of 12? 
This is at the beginning of 13. Be- start of 13. So this is before the staff had even, uh, even come back from work. And this is coming into a new era of cars, car of the future, brand new car. Everything that was in the workshop the year before from the terms of those cars, different cars. You had to build cars, get cars. So that's also going on in the background here, but not even a factor considering the bigger ticket stuff. So there was on. a whole heap of things that went on. And one of the things that went on that's that's untold that still still – it, it, it it's quite telling of, of what was occurring at the time. So when you have a business, you have an asset register and you have a balance sheet. And race teams typically will have the chassis number against the car that's on their balance sheet. And there were four cars in the building, five chassis, three of which were owned by DJR. At the end of 2012, there were two cars remaining and a chassis. And they weren't all the ones that were on the balance sheet. So that should give you an indication of where things were up to. So come the beginning of 2013, the business had debts of eight figures. That's big. There were liens on all of the assets. And there was no way out. There was no, no sane person could look at the books, look at the balance sheet and say, this is an entity that, that should exist as, an, as, an, as a going concern. Your call was wrap it up. There's just no way out. You just there's there's not no even recovery. the most positive no, person in the world. No, no. and Steve Brayback had been put in a terrible position where he was he was signing all these agreements and putting money into the team to pay for the new cars, and he was extremely ill at the time and was signing off on all this paperwork when he, when he was deathly ill. And it put him in a terrible situation too, because he didn't—he didn't have the full picture of what was going on either. But it should have been shut down. What was the reaction from Dick and Jilly and Stephen when you said that? It didn't come as a surprise to Steve. I think it did to Jilly, but it was—it was—it was certainly the case of reality setting in for Dick. And it was quite a long conversation, and I sort of played things out. And I'm I'm always I'm always I like to think that I'm a ruthless pragmatist. <laughs> DJ will describe me as the pessimist to his optimist, and that's probably true too. I see the glass as half empty; he sees it as half full, and that's why we balance each other out pretty well. But yeah, there was there was no there was no way of coming out of that quagmire as it was at the time. So I said to Dick entered you. I said, look, what do, what do you want to do here? And he said to me, I don't know how to do anything else. And man, that 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 got me. It got me. I just thought, here's my hero. He's he's his health's no bloody good for one thing. He doesn't understand just how much shit he's in. And he's telling me he doesn't know what else he can do either. And you're it. Yeah. Do you sort of think at that stage, I'm going to have to do this. I cannot not do this and get involved deeper and roll my sleeves up because you'd step back at the end of 12. So in essence, you, you don't have a position at this team. You've helped and assisted the previous year or two. Yeah, yeah. But that meeting is the one that brings you onto the pathway that brings you to where we are sitting here now, in but it essence. Was, it was interesting, uh it was interesting, there was a presidential election in, in 2012 
and that took place over the weekend, the, over the Abu Dhabi race weekend. So I missed the Abu Dhabi race weekend because I was in the United States for the presidential election. And I was almost at my rock bottom personally. I felt I felt that. I felt that because I was on the outer with the team. Things weren't going especially well with some of my business and political endeavours outside of Australia in particular. And I think everyone's experienced in their life where sometimes you feel like you're swimming against the tide and you don't quite understand why no one else can see what you can see. And that was a position that I felt in. I went through a phase for a couple of months there at the end of 2012 where I wasn't, it wasn't, it was, there was a bit of black dog about it. Mm. So I said to Dick and Jill and to Steve, I said, look, if this, if you truly want to fight for this thing, I'll back you all the way. I'll put whatever resources I need to to make it work. I'll do it full time. I'll run the thing full time. But you need to you need to work with me. The day that we're not on the same page, the day that I ask you to do something and you don't do it, if I can't rationalise it, it's over. And that's that's where we got to. They agreed to that. And from that moment on, I started putting together a plan to try and keep DJR racing. When the number's that big, that thing is up against you, where do you start? What are your first goals? What are your first couple of things that you must do in that situation to start this in essence, the recovery mission. I know. Look, it's a story that's been spoken of so many times, but I think about it all the time. And I sometimes, I know a lot more about motorsport and the category now. I was very fortunate to have been elected to the commission last year, which gave me a sense of, it made me feel like I'd, I'd, I'd earned my place. When you're an outsider, you have to earn your place. You have to earn respect. I felt like I felt like I'd achieved that, and I felt that that was a consequence of what had occurred here over the previous five or so years. Not a reflection necessarily of where we'd managed to get things to on track, but I suppose a recognition that I wasn't doing a half bad job of running a race team. So that was a that was a. It doesn't sound like much, but those things when when you when you effectively give up your old life for a new one and you get that recognition and support by your peers it, it can it can be quite a it can be quite a quite a quite a significant moment in the journey i suppose so the decisions but if i knew i don't believe that i could have navigated the team through uh through where it was back at the beginning of 2013 knowing everything I know about the category now, I think it benefited from the fact that I didn't have those established relationships that I had to build them, that I didn't know as much about the sport now as what I do. But wouldn't that have made your life easier? But I think I would have been I would have been more hesitant. I would have been more risk-averse. I would have been more conservative in my approach to doing things. I took a huge number of risks that were going to be hero or zero-type moments along the way. And... 
the first thing I did was, you know, talk to all the creditors, build a rapport with them, start putting payment plans together with the people who were owed money, um, try and stop Steve from putting more money into the team and, and, and limit that because he had been taken advantage of, not by not by Dick but, but by others in quite a significant way and and start to rebuild and try and get the thing to a point where I was consciously making decisions that were sabotaging our potential on-track performance because the business needed to survive. And the first day back from work, from the Christmas holidays, all the staff for a four-car team turned up. And there's me standing in the middle addressing them on the floor, on the floor down there in this very building, and I told it to them exactly how it is. We don't know if we're four cars, we don't know if we're two cars, we don't know if we're one. There's a deal with ProDrive for engineering and we're going to buy all the parts from them, or FPR as they were then. The plan's to run a car of the future, FPR car. We know we've got one chassis complete, we don't have the second chassis complete. Right now we've got two sponsors. I'm going to personally make sure we make pay this week, but if any of you have opportunities to go elsewhere, take them and take them now. I don't know what's going to happen next week, but we're taking this thing each day as it comes. Now, prior to that, we'd made a decision for Stevie J to step out of the car. And that was something that he and I talked about. Dick and Jill were very much against it, but Steve understood why it was necessary. And it was necessary because you needed to find a driver with funding. Correct. And it was it was the right time to do that. And part of that was to put Steve in the business and give him the title of general manager. I was... The, the objective for me at all times was to be hidden and behind the scenes. And for many years, I, I ex- existed as DJR's <laughs> spokesman for many, many years. <laughs> many Speed Cafe and Supercars.com articles, um, I was attributed uh, as the DJR's spokesman. And I joke about that with a lot of journos to this day. But uh, but I would I would help Steve with making uh, making decisions and... I would give every day I'd come in and I'd have a, li- a call sheet for both him and for Dick of who they needed to call and precisely what they needed to say. And in the background, I was then building my own relationships with all of these suppliers. None of them knew who the hell I was, but I put my money where my mouth was. I was paying off their bills and I reached payment agreements with them. And every week I'd pay them off an, an amount of money and that money was coming from my bank account. And then uh, we were fortunate enough to have a race-by-race agreement with Wilson Security. That helped enormously. It obviously wasn't enough for us to go racing. Uh, The Blanchard family came into the picture, and I can't say nice enough things about uh, Tim Blanchard, John Blanchard, Cool Drive, and and that whole group. They're wonderful people. Um, Their word is gospel. Uh, They're racers, and uh, and they do what they say they do. And and, And they're no different... They, they were no different to any of the other staff at the time. You know, we had the test day at Eastern Creek. We rocked up with one car. Tim rocked up not knowing if the car was going to be there or, or how it was all going to play out. And Richie Swan, who was our team manager then, and, and all the staff, they all pulled together and did a phenomenal job in getting that car to the test day. That was a Herculean effort. And then to then roll up with two cars... At Adelaide, and there was a you know a sprinkling of Nathan Tinkler and all sorts of other things between that test day and and Adelaide that we don't need to go into. But uh, we turned up with two cars at Adelaide, and look, we weren't competitive by any means, but we had a fully staffed outfit, and we were there. We had off the rack overalls for our pit crew, but we had um, and we had off the shelf 
uh, over uh, suits for the drivers for the first couple of events too. And we were just struggling on by, but uh, we were taking it day by day, race by race. History shows that you keep going, you kept <laughs> getting the races. Well, and you actually won a race yes, that year. Yes, we ended so up. So from struggling to just get to the first race yeah. to a kid called Moss that arrives in the door on loan from FPR and at Queensland Raceway, your home track, I don't think enough is made of where you had gone in six months from perilous situation to you on the workshop floor here telling people we don't know what's going to happen day by day yeah. to winning a race in the toughest championship in this end of the world. Mm. It's pretty impressive. It's yeah, pretty amazing. I, I, I still I, I still maintain that that my contribution was was being the walking checkbook at the time, <laughs> re, re, really, um, and making the executive decisions. But it was people like Richie Swan, uh, Sue Wilson. Um, there were an, an, Keith Chesterton, Danny Irvin. There's so many people who were loyal to Dick and loyal to the team and worked through that period. Now, no one ever missed a paycheck. That's the thing I'm proudest of, and Dick's proudest of too. Even through the worst of times, no one ever missed a paycheck. That was priority one. I'd turn up at work on a Monday. Staff were paid weekly. We'd get to Tuesday. We didn't have enough for wages. I think, okay, my focus for the next 48 hours to have an, is to have enough money in the bank account to pay the wage bill. That was always my priority every week. And then work through it and make sure we maintained the commitments we'd made to suppliers and ensure we could keep the wheels greased and keep the machine turning. But, but yeah, the most Mostert joining the team with Adam Debore was a was a, a, a wonderful a wonderful wonderful thing for all of us. It was great to be able to give him his first opportunity in the main game, and uh, and he was an outstanding ambassador for Dick Johnson Racing. And the trophy and the team owners trophy sit behind my desk here, behind uh, behind right now they stand they, they sit behind a painting of Nicky Lauder by Greg McNeil but uh, yeah, behind the painting is those uh, two trophies from QR that, that, uh, that Sunday So that's part one of our chat with Ryan's story on the V8 Sleuth podcast powered by Timken Stay tuned for part two where he tells the story of how the union with Team Penske came to be and he reveals the role that a Supercars fan favourite played in getting the deal over the line Now like I said off the top this chat formed part of our research for our upcoming book 40 Years of Cars from Dick Johnson Racing and DJR Team Penske. If you want to secure your copy, head to authenticcollectibles.com.au where you can pre-order it there and make sure you don't miss out when it's been released. To all those who have already pre-ordered and have been very patient with us, thank you. It's not too far away. If you're enjoying the V8 Sleuth podcast, make sure you leave us a review to help spread the word and don't forget to subscribe to make sure you don't miss episodes when they come out. There'll be a lot more of them this year. We're releasing a podcast pretty much every week during the 2020 supercar season. If you haven't been to our website recently, we've given it a birthday and a new livery. So check it out at v8sleuth.com.au. And as always, keep an eye on our socials, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to stay up to date. Until then, we'll catch you next time on the V8 Sleuth podcast, powered by Timken. Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online, thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil, and find out.